0: Part Three of The Dead. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Klett. Houston, Texas, December two thousand seven. The Dead from Dubliners by James Joyce. Part Three a fat brown goose lay at one end of the table and at the other end on a bed of creased paper strewn with sprigs of parsley lay a great ham stripped of its outer skin and peppered over with crust crumbs a neat paper frill round its shin and beside this was a round of spiced beef between these rival ends ran parallel lines of side dishes two little minsters of jelly red and yellow a shallow dish full of blocks of blanc and red jam a large green leaf-shaped dish with a stalk-shaped handle, on which lay bunches of purple raisins and peeled almonds, a companion dish on which lay a solid rectangle of Smyrna figs, a dish of custard topped with grated nutmeg, a small bowl full of chocolates and sweets, wrapped in gold and silver papers, and a glass vase in which stood some tall celery stalks. In the centre of the table there stood, as sentries to a fruit-stand which upheld a pyramid of oranges and American apples— Two squat, old-fashioned decanters of cut glass, one containing port, and the other dark sherry. On the closed square piano, a pudding and a huge yellow dish lay in waiting, and behind it were three squads of bottles of stout and ale and minerals, drawn up according to the colors of their uniforms—the first two black, with brown and red labels, the third and smallest squad white, with transverse green sashes. Gabriel took his seat boldly at the head of the table— and, having looked to the edge of the carver, plunged his fork firmly into the goose. He felt quite at ease now, for he was an expert carver, and liked nothing better than to find himself at the head of a well-laden table. "'Miss Furlong, what shall I send you?' he asked. "'A wing, or a slice of the breast?' "'Just a small slice of the breast.' "'Miss Higgins, what for you?' "'Oh, anything at all, Mr. Conroy.' While Gabriel and Miss Daly exchanged plates of goose and plates of ham and spiced beef, Lily went from guest to guest with a dish of hot floury potatoes wrapped in a white napkin. This was Mary Jane's idea, and she had also suggested applesauce for the goose, but Aunt Kate had said that plain roast goose without any applesauce had always been good enough for her, and she hoped she might never eat worse. Mary Jane waited on her pupils, and saw that they got the best slices and Aunt Kate and Aunt Julia opened and carried across from the piano bottles of stout and ale for the gentlemen, and bottles of minerals for the ladies. There was a great deal of confusion and laughter and noise, the noise of orders and counter-orders, of knives and forks, of corks and glass-stoppers. Gabriel began to carve second helpings as soon as he had finished the first round, without serving himself. Everyone protested loudly so that he compromised, by taking a long draught of stout, for he had found the carving hot work. Mary Jane settled down quietly to her supper, but Aunt Kate and Aunt Julia were still toddling round the table, walking on each other's heels, getting in each other's way, and giving each other unheeded orders. Mr. Brown begged of them to sit down and eat their suppers, and so did Gabriel, but they said there was time enough, so that, at last, Freddie Malins stood up, and, capturing Aunt Kate, plumped her down on her chair amid general laughter. When everyone had been well served, Gabriel said, smiling,— Now, if any one wants a little more of what vulgar people call stuffing, let him or her speak. A chorus of voices invited him to begin his own supper, and Lily came forward with three potatoes which she had reserved for him. "'Very well,' said Gabriel amiably, as he took another preparatory draft. "'Kindly forget my existence, ladies and gentlemen, for a few minutes.' He set to his supper, and took no part in the conversation with which the table covered Lily's removal of the plates— The subject of talk was the opera company, which was then at the Theatre Royal. Mr. Bartle Darcy, the tenor, a dark-complexioned young man with a smart moustache, praised very highly the leading contralto of the company, but Miss Furlong thought she had a rather vulgar style of production. Freddy Malins said there was a negro chieftain, singing in the second part of the gaiety pantomime, who had one of the finest tenor voices he had ever heard. "'Have you heard him?' he asked Mr. Bartle-Darcy across the table. "'No,' answered Mr. Bartle-Darcy carelessly. "'Because,' Freddy Mallins explained, "'now I'd be curious to hear your opinion of him. I think he has a grand voice.' "'It takes Teddy to find out the really good things,' said Mr. Brown familiarly to the table. "'And why couldn't he have a voice, too?' asked Freddy Mallins sharply. "'Is it because he's only a black?' Nobody answered this question, and Mary Jane led the table back to the legitimate opera. One of her pupils had given her a pass for Mignon. Of course it was very fine, she said, but it made her think of poor Georgina Burns. Mr. Brown could go back farther still, to the old Italian companies that used to come to Dublin—Teachins, Ilma de Mersca, Campanini, the Great Trebelli, Guglini, Ravelli, Aramburo. Those were the days, he said— when there was something like singing to be heard in Dublin. He told, too, of how the top gallery of the old royal used to be packed night after night, of how one night an Italian tenor had sung five encores to Let Me Like a Soldier Fall, introducing a high sea every time, and of how the gallery boys would sometimes, in their enthusiasm, unyoke the horses from the carriage of some great prima donna, and pull her themselves through the streets to her hotel. "'Why did they never play the grand old operas now?' he asked. "'Denora, Lucrezia Borgia. Because they could not get the voices to sing them. That was why.' "'Oh, well,' said Mr. Bartle D'Arcy, "'I presume there are as good singers to-day as there were then.' "'Where are they?' asked Mr. Brown, defiantly. "'In London. Paris. Milan,' said Mr. Bartle D'Arcy warmly. "'I suppose Caruso, for example, is quite as good, if not better, than any of the men you have mentioned.' "'Maybe so,' said Mr. Brown. "'But I may tell you I doubt it strongly.' "'Oh, I'd give anything to hear Caruso sing,' said Mary Jane. "'For me,' said Aunt Kate, who had been picking a bone, "'there was only one tenor—to please me, I mean. But I suppose none of you ever heard of him.' Who was he, Miss Morkan? asked Mr. Bartle-Darcy, politely. His name, said Aunt Kate, was Parkinson. I heard him when he was in his prime, and I think he had, then, the purest tenor voice that was ever put into a man's throat. "'Strange,' said Mr. Bartle-Darcy. I never even heard of him." "'Yes—yes, yes, Miss Morkan is right,' said Mr. Brown. I remember hearing of old Parkinson but he's too far back for me." "'A beautiful, pure, sweet, mellow English tenor,' said Aunt Kate, with enthusiasm. Gabriel having finished, the huge pudding was transferred to the table. The clatter of forks and spoons began again. Gabriel's wife served out spoonfuls of the pudding, and passed the plates down the table. Midway down they were held up by Mary Jane, who replenished them with raspberry or orange jelly, or with blancmange and jam. The pudding was of Aunt Julia's making, and she received praises for it from all quarters. She herself said that it was not quite brown enough. "'Well, I hope, Miss Morgan,' said Mr. Brown, "'that I'm brown enough for you, because you know I'm all brown.'" All the gentlemen except Gabriel ate some of the pudding out of compliment to Aunt Julia. As Gabriel never ate sweets, the celery had been left for him— Freddie Malins also took a stalk of celery and ate it with his pudding. He had been told that celery was a capital thing for the blood, and he was just then under doctor's care. Mrs. Malins, who had been silent all through supper, said that her son was going down to Mount Melloray in a week or so. The table then spoke of Mount Melloray. How bracing the air was down there! How hospitable the monks were, and how they never asked for a penny piece from their guests. And do you mean to say?" asked Mr. Brown incredulously that a chap can go down there, and put up as if it were a hotel, and live on the fat of the land, and then come away without paying anything. "'Oh, most people give some donation to the monastery when they leave,' said Mary Jane. "'I wish we had an institution like that in our church,' said Mr. Brown, candidly. He was astonished to hear that the monks never spoke, got up at two in the morning, and slept in their coffins. He asked what they did it for. "'That's the rule of the order,' said Aunt Kate, firmly. "'Yes, but why?' asked Mr. Brown. Aunt Kate repeated that it was the rule, that was all. Mr. Brown still seemed not to understand. Freddy Mounds explained to him, as best he could, that the monks were trying to make up for the sins committed by all the sinners in the outside world. The explanation was not very clear, for Mr. Brown grinned and said, "'I like that idea very much.' "'But wouldn't a comfortable spring bed do them as well as a coffin?' "'The coffin,' said Mary Jane, "'is to remind them of their last end.' "'As the subject had grown lugubrious, "'it was buried in a silence of the table, "'during which Mrs. Mallance could be heard saying to her neighbor "'in an indistinct undertone, "'They are very good men, the monks, very pious men.' The raisins and almonds and figs, and apples and oranges and chocolates and sweets, were now passed about the table, and Aunt Julia invited all the guests to have either port or sherry. At first Mr. Bartle D'Arcy refused to take either, but one of his neighbors nudged him and whispered something to him, upon which he allowed his glass to be filled. Gradually, as the last glasses were being filled, the conversation ceased. A pause followed, broken only by the noise of the wine, and by unsettlings of chairs. The Mrs. Morkan, all three, looked down at the tablecloth. Someone coughed once or twice, and then a few gentlemen patted the table gently as a signal for silence. The silence came, and Gabriel pushed back his chair. The patting at once grew louder in encouragement, and then ceased altogether. Gabriel leaned his ten trembling fingers on the tablecloth, and smiled nervously at the company. Meeting a row of upturned faces, he raised his eyes to the chandelier. The piano was playing a waltz tune, and he could hear the skirts sweeping against the drawing-room door. People, perhaps, were standing in the snow on the quay outside, gazing up at the lighted windows, and listening to the waltz music. The air was pure there. In the distance lay the park where the trees were weighted with snow. The Wellington monument wore a gleaming cap of snow that flashed westward over the white field of fifteen acres. He began— "'Ladies and gentlemen, it has fallen to my lot this evening, as in years past, to perform a very pleasing task, but a task for which I am afraid my poor powers as a speaker are all too inadequate.' "'No, no,' said Mr. Brown. "'But however that may be, I can only ask you to-night to take the will for the deed, and to lend me your attention for a few moments—' while I endeavour to express to you in words what my feelings are on this occasion. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not the first time that we have gathered together under this hospitable roof, around this hospitable board. It is not the first time that we have been the recipients, or perhaps I had better say, the victims, of the hospitality of certain good ladies. He made a circle in the air with his arm, and paused every one laughed or smiled at Aunt Kate and Aunt Julia and Mary Jane, who all turned crimson with pleasure. Gabriel went on more boldly. "'I feel more strongly with every recurring year that our country has no tradition which does it so much honor, and which it should guard so jealously, as that of its hospitality. "'It is a tradition that is unique as far as my experience goes, and I have visited not a few places abroad, among the modern nations.' Some would say, perhaps, that with us it is rather a failing than anything to be boasted of. But granted even that, it is, to my mind, a princely failing, and one that I trust will long be cultivated among us. Of one thing at least, I am sure. As long as this one roof shelters the good ladies aforesaid, and I wish from my heart it may do so for many and many a long year to come, the tradition of genuine, warm-hearted, courteous, Irish hospitality, which our forefathers have handed down to us, and which we in turn must hand down to our descendants, is still alive among us. A hearty murmur of assent ran round the table. It shot through Gabriel's mind that Miss Ivers was not there, and that she had gone away discourteously. And he said with confidence in himself, Ladies and gentlemen, a new generation is growing up in our midst— A GENERATION ACTUATED BY NEW IDEAS AND NEW PRINCIPLES. IT IS SERIOUS AND ENTHUSIASTIC FOR THESE NEW IDEAS, AND ITS ENTHUSIASM, EVEN WHEN IT IS MISDIRECTED, IS, I BELIEVE, IN THE MAIN, SINCERE. BUT WE ARE LIVING IN A SKEPTICAL, AND, IF I MAY USE THE PHRASE, A THOUGHT-TORMENTED AGE. AND SOMETIMES I FEAR THAT THIS NEW GENERATION, EDUCATED OR HYPER-EDUCATED AS IT IS, WILL LACK THOSE QUALITIES OF HUMANITY, OF HOSPITALITY, of kindly humour which belonged to an older day. Listening to-night to the names of all those great singers of the past, it seemed to me, I must confess, that we were living in a less spacious age. Those days might, without exaggeration, be called spacious days, and if they are gone beyond recall, let us hope at least that in gatherings such as this, we shall still speak of them with pride and affection— Still cherish in our hearts the memory of those dead and gone great ones, whose fame the world will not willingly let die. "'Hear, hear!' said Mr. Brown, loudly. "'But yet,' continued Gabriel, his voice falling into a softer inflection, "'there are always in gatherings such as this sadder thoughts that will recur to our minds—thoughts of the past, of youth, of changes, of absent faces that we miss here to-night.' Our path through life is strewn with many such sad memories, and were we to brood upon them always, we could not find the heart to go on bravely with our work among the living. We have, all of us, living duties, and living affections, which claim, and rightly claim, our strenuous endeavors. Therefore I will not linger on the past. I will not let any gloomy moralizing intrude upon us here tonight. Here we are gathered together for a brief moment from the bustle and rush of our everyday routine. We are met here as friends, in the spirit of good fellowship, as colleagues, also, to a certain extent, in the true spirit of camaraderie, and as the guests of—what shall I call them?—the Three Graces of the Dublin Musical World. The table burst into applause and laughter at this allusion. Aunt Julia vainly asked each of her neighbors in turn to tell her what Gabriel had said. "'He says we are the three graces, Aunt Julia,' said Mary Jane. Aunt Julia did not understand, but she looked up, smiling, at Gabriel, who continued in the same vein. Ladies and gentlemen, I will not attempt to play to-night the part that Paris played on another occasion. I will not attempt to choose between them. The task would be an invidious one, and one beyond my poor powers. For when I view them in turn, whether it be our chief hostess herself, whose good heart, whose too good heart, has become a byword with all who know her, or her sister, who seems to be gifted with perennial youth, and whose singing must have been a surprise and a revelation to us all tonight, or last but not least, when I consider our youngest hostess, talented, cheerful, hard-working, and the best of nieces. I confess, ladies and gentlemen, that I do not know to which of them I should award the prize. Gabriel glanced down at his aunt's, and seeing the large smile on Aunt Julia's face, and the tears which had risen to Aunt Kate's eyes, hastened his close. He raised his glass of port gallantly, while every member of the company fingered a glass expectantly, and said loudly, "'Let us toast them all three together,' Let us drink to their health, wealth, long life, happiness, and prosperity, and may they long continue to hold the proud and self-won position, which they hold in their profession, and the position of honor and affection, which they hold in our hearts. All the guests stood up, glass in hand, and turning towards the three seated ladies, sang in unison, with Mr. Brown as leader. FOR THEY ARE JOLLY GAY FELLOWS, FOR THEY ARE JOLLY GAY FELLOWS, FOR THEY ARE JOLLY GAY FELLOWS, WHICH NOBODY CAN DENY. Aunt Kate was making frank use of her handkerchief, and even Aunt Julia seemed moved. Freddy Malins beat time with his pudding-fork, and the singers turned towards one another, as if in melodious conference, while they sang with emphasis— unless he tells a lie unless he tells a lie then turning once more toward their hostesses they sang for they are jolly gay fellows for they are jolly gay fellows for they are jolly gay fellows which nobody can deny the acclamation which followed was taken up beyond the door of the supper-room by many of the other guests and renewed time after time FREDDIE MALIN'S ACTING AS OFFICER, WITH HIS FORK ON HIGH END OF PART THREE